Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. General practice in the UK feels like it's on the brink. A backlog of demand, endless requests for online consultations, and expectations of a return to business as usual have left many GPs feeling like they've had enough. Today, we're discussing work stress and burnout and ask, when there's a fire raging, do you take a deep breath in or do you find the nearest exit? To help find some answers, we speak to the You Are Not A Frog podcast host and GP, Rachel Morris, as well as Kat and Abby from the BMJ's Wellbeing podcast. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And joining me as uh, ever, it's uh, Navjoy. Hi, Navjoy. Hi, I'm Navjoy Larder. I am the head of education at the BMJ and I'm a locum GP. And uh, Jenny, hi. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. So I don't know if you like my, my fire analogy there, but it, it does feel like there's there's something going on at the moment in general practice in the UK. Um, but it's really hard to know whether that's like just a tiny little flame that you could just blow out or whether you, it really is something that you can't control. Um, is that is that roughly, I mean, that's how I've been feeling lately, that it's just a really difficult time and I'm not quite sure what to do about it. How are you two feeling? Yeah, I think it's, I, I feel exactly the same, Tom. It, and it's hard to know that is this, um, exactly to use your fire analogy, is this something small that can be put out maybe with an increased fire risk that we'll have to be very vigilant about, but, you know, largely under control or is this kind of raging and we've all just got to get out of the building? I don't know. It's really difficult at the moment. It is, it is. Um, and Jenny? All I can think when you said that is the this is fine cartoon yep. with the dog sitting there with the little hat and the house burning down around him. <laughs> like, it's fine. It's pandemic, okay? Yeah. We're fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, oh, good. Well, I'm glad you like, liked it because I know they don't always go down so well with you, <laughs> these analogies. And anyway, let's move on from that. But um, yeah, I mean, and lately I've, I've, been, I've said to you, um, not on the podcast, but separately that, I'm really not, well, certainly not enjoying a lot of general practice at the moment. I really haven't been sure whether, you know, it's sustainable just for for me. And uh, I see a lot of people, well, on Twitter anyway, uh, seem to be saying the same thing. Mm. Um, It's really hard to to gauge, like, am I just stressed? Do I just need a day off? Um, uh, You know, is it me or is Mm. it you? What do you think, what what do you think is going on there, Tom, that's kind of causing this? Um, I don't know. I think there's just so many factors out there. Partly it's that, you know, I've got other things like moving house and got a one-year-old and, you know, it's just really busy time. And, you know, uh, partly there's the last year hasn't been that great in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but then, yeah, I mean, in the practice, certainly a, a rise in demand. And this, as I say, this expectation, I think for some, for, you know, understandable from, from patients, you know, you're open, you should be open. But yet we've still got to, to consider the risks of, you know, footfall within mm. the building and, you know, PPE and, um, you know, trying to strike that balance. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it is so hard. And that, that I mean, I totally hear you on, you know, this um, sort of the online consulting is kind of going up and up and up. But at the same time, you know, face-to-face consultations are, are going up and up and up. And what I can't kind of like get my head around is just the number of like contacts that you know uh, the shifts I've done recently it's just like a colossal number of contacts and I you know I should preface all of this by saying you know as a locum and with my my main job being at the BMJ I'm in the rather privileged position of you know it, I, I do um, a session or two a week and that's it and even those that just you know a single session I can leave feeling really depleted um, and so I honestly don't know how people who are doing, you know, more sort of full time roles, I, I can imagine it is incredibly draining because, yeah, just the sheer volume of work that seems to exist at the moment. Yeah, so for for a good two or three weeks, uh, I feel a bit, bit better now, but I was definitely at the end of a clinical day feeling, well, completely exhausted, <laughs> my brain a bit of a mush, 
um, having less empathy. I felt like particularly throughout the day, you know, having less patience and less sort of interest in, in the problems that people were presenting to me in, in, in practice. Um, yeah, just really starting to think, well, what, what's, what, what am I doing here? And, um, you know, is this what I want to be doing, I suppose? Um, and then, yeah, you start to think, well, what is this? Is this burnout, you know, um, uh, uh, yeah. And, and so I think I'm looking forward to today hearing a bit more about that, perhaps, and maybe making that a bit clearer about the distinction between these things uh, and what follows on if you do manage to work out what, what is going on, what are the things you, you can and can't do. And, and when do you just, when do you make that decision that actually this isn't worth it for me, you know, and I could be doing something different and not feel like this. Um, Navjoy, have you ever felt burnt out? Um, I, I mean, I've definitely gone through periods where I have found work extremely challenging and um, where, yeah, exactly that thing of coming coming back, feeling depleted, feeling like you're not really giving your best self to, to the job anymore. Um, and that's always been periods of time where just a, a bit like now where the, just the volume of work becomes so dominant and overwhelming and it, it, it really impacts on your you know where I can't get work out of my head as well I mean that's kind of classic for me is where I'm really overthinking the decisions I've made and that that I find has a you know for most of the time that doesn't happen I'm you know confident and happy and feeling very fulfilled with work but those times when I'm sort of questioning whether, you know, is what I've done any good? And I think that often is directly correlated to the conditions in which, you know, you have to work, where if you feel that, you know, you don't have the time or you don't have, you know, those kind of um, the resources that you need to do your job well. And that's something that, um, well, you'll hear me talk about in um, the interview with uh, Rachel, is this tension between this kind of the system and the impact that it has on you as an individual and how to go about reconciling that. Um, so maybe this is a good point to actually hear from Rachel. So I spoke to Rachel Morris, who is a GP uh, and an educator. She leads a lot of training on um, leadership and resilience. And she's also the host of the podcast. She's kind of GP podcast royalty. She presents um, the You Are Not A Frog uh, podcast, which for those of you who don't know the analogy, um, that name comes from frogs in boiling water, where, you know, initially the water is cool and the frogs don't realise, but if you put the temp temperature up slowly, 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 suddenly um, you realise that you're in boiling water and you either end up being boiled alive or you have to jump out of the pan. Um, and so... Was this a was this a research paper in the BJGP? I don't know if it was a boiling frogs. <laughs> yeah, it's like what what temperature does a frog have to jump out? And um, maybe are we approaching that temperature now? Who knows? Um, but anyway, that that's um, I mean I think it's a, it's a, for for a podcast for a podcast about uh, workplace stress, um, finding sort of fulfilment at work. It's a pretty good uh, pretty good title. Um, and I started off by just to pick up on what you were talking about, Tom, um, by asking Rachel about this distinction between the kind of stress and overwhelm that seems so prevalent um, and we're hearing so many, I'm hearing so many colleagues and friends describing at the moment, the distinction between that and burnout, which obviously is, um, you know, a buzzword that a lot of people are using at the moment. And that's coming up after a word from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24 seven in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. 
with a free counselling service and e-care app. We're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now back to my chat with Rachel Morris. Well, what do you sort of, how do you define burnout and what do you think are the kind of some of the features that if you're a GP with burnout, you might, you might notice or, or feel? Yeah, well, burnout is now an official definition in the ICD. It's 12 classifications now by the World, by the World Health Organization and it's classified as a syndrome caused by workplace interestingly then and by workplace I think that's a completely broad definition your workplace can be the home when you are having to work maybe you're a full-time carer or you know it's classified by three main things firstly is a feeling of total exhaustion so your get up and go has got up and gone essentially stress is a very high energy state burnout is when when that's gone and there's very good physiological reasons for that so complete exhaustion and exhaustion that isn't relieved by having a day off or a good night's sleep or a weekend off. The second one is lack of empathy. You don't have the same compassion that you might have had for yourself or for other people. You just can't can't see other people's point of view. You, you can't feel for them anymore. And then finally, um, poor performance. So when you are have burnt out, you may feel that your performance is really, really bad and quite often your performance is not so good because of what's happening to your brain and physiologically as well. So it's, it's really that those trio of symptoms. Um, and it's, it, it's quite a specific thing, I think. I think people use the word burning out or burnout in lots of interchangeable ways at the moment to, to, to describe the fact that they're stressed. Mm. But it is actually a, a specific syndrome. And, and it's really serious because it's not just about, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling well because I'm burnt out. But there's evidence to show that doctors with higher levels of burnout make 63% more medical errors. Mm. So it's like a big imperative in terms of patient safety. Yeah. I mean, all three things, all three, three things that you just described there seem quite bad in the context of, you know, being a clinician and, you know, poor performance or compassion fatigue as well They're, and feeling exhausted. They're all not going to, not going to add up to you sort of feeling on top of your work. You mentioned there that, you know, a lot of people are talking about burnout, but probably not fulfilling those criteria. And there do seem to be high levels of stress in the profession at the moment. Um, from doing your podcast and your own work that you do, what do you think are the most important things that GPs can do? You know, if they are at that stress level, say, or if they they or a colleague has burnout, what what do you think are the kind of key key things to to do? Well, I think first is to recognise it because it's much better to prevent burnout than to deal with it when it happens. So, if you can recognise when you're at that that stress level, you can often do something about it and get better a lot quicker. I think if you go right the way into burnout, you often need to take a lot of time off work. You have to reset your entire life. It, it takes a lot of sort of mm-hmm. um, remediation and, and help with that. So I would say, first of all, recognize it and, and get and get the help that you need. Don't, don't go it alone. But I think the other thing is traditionally, we have not been taught about self-care. Mm. We have not been taught that self-care is as important as as caring for other people. You know, that old adage of put your oxygen, own oxygen mask on first, it's it's really true. And I know it's really, really trite. And we've sort of got a bit sick of hearing that message and sick of hearing that message about wellbeing. But actually, there is nowhere else to start in terms of making sure that you have got the, the basics right, like getting enough sleep, eating well, getting some exercise, making sure you're connecting with people that you're not lonely because we know that loneliness causes stress in itself. And there's other things like giving, um, learning, taking notice, you know, those, those five ways to well-being, which are really, really important. But what I've noticed when, when talking to GPs and doctors about this is that it's not that they don't know what to do. It's just they don't have the time to do it. Mm. 
So there's no point going in and telling people you've got to be, you've got to well, you know, come on this well-being webinar and, and come to this yoga or mindfulness session. And by the way, you've still got to see all these patients and you've still got to work in exactly the same way because they'll just say, well, I haven't, I haven't got time in that. It's the biggest barrier is the time barrier. But I think there are things you can do about that. And I think a lot of the time when we say we don't have time, it's more we don't have the energy because we do have time for the things we want to do. And I think if you actually plotted out your day, you'll see that there's probably quite a lot of time spent engaging in, in those behaviors. We, we just try and do to switch off, maybe scrolling through Facebook or engaging in Netflix, you know, back-to-back -back Netflix episodes or things like that. So actually taking control and saying is what, what have I got control of? So in the time that I have got, what can I do? So making sure you're getting, you're scheduling in that exercise session and making it easy to do and getting some accountability for it. That just being, being one example. But I think the, the biggest thing I talk to doctors about is really this concept of the zone of power. So looking at what you can control, what's in your control and what's outside your control. Because if you focus on the things that are outside your control, then you're just going to get very stressed. You can, nothing you can do about that. And the things that are outside our control at the moment are things like what's going on with coronavirus, that patient demands actually what patients think of the medical profession at the moment. That's, that's quite distressing, really, the stuff we're seeing in the media. But actually, as an individual, there's not a lot I can do about what's printed in the, in the newspaper about, about GPs. But actually, what's in my control is how I react to things and how I choose to use my time and what I choose to say yes or no to, what additional roles I decide to take on. I might not be in control of the workload that's coming at me, but I am in control of when I, when I do that. Um, potentially, so I might then be in control of making time at other times to do it and not trying to fit too much into my diary. Often I'm in control of how many sessions I work. I might be in control of even where I choose to work. I'm certainly in control of if I take breaks or not. Now, people would say, oh, I don't have time for lunch break or a coffee break. Actually, the evidence is if you take that break, you will be more productive and actually your surgery won't take any longer. So you, you are in control of going to get a coffee. Um, so there are lots of little things that you could do differently that maybe people are just feeling very disempowered and aren't choosing to do that. Now, that, that might be a slightly annoying answer for some people. And when I do my training, I get people to get yes, but, and so what cards that so they can go, yeah, but, yeah, but, and so what? And I'm sure that lots of people are thinking, <laughs> yes, but, and so what right now? But, but, but genuinely, you, you cannot control other people. You can only control yourself. And you need to start with, with doing those things that are actually going to help. And then if you are a partner in a practice or, you know, in a position of leadership, you can then start to look at actually within our practice, what are we in control of? Are we in control of how we schedule our appointments or how we deal with this paperwork or that paperwork? And there are things that you can do to, to make things better for lots of people. But again, a lot of the time, people don't have even the time to have a look and see what they need to do. So sometimes it's a question of saying, even though we feel we've not got time, we are going to block off this time in our day to have a proper discussion about how we can make this better in our practice. And, and sort of one of the things you're alluding to and one of the things we've talked about on the podcast in the context of burnout is um, about all, you know, there are all these systemic pressures um, facing primary care, uh, but the experience of overwhelm of burnout can feel very isolating. You can feel like it's kind of a personal failure. And often the suggested solutions are an individual behaviour. Um, you know, as you're saying, that's often all you can control, even though most of most of it, or maybe even all of it, that the problem is systemic at its root. And I really struggle to reconcile those two things. Um, you know, even if I think about, okay, well, I'll try and control what I can control, it is really hard not to get frustrated by the fact that there are these bigger things going on. I mean, how do you, how do you navigate that? I think it's really difficult. And I think number one is acknowledging it. And um, I'm a big fan of sort of two by two diagrams, you know, when you've got like a, a grid with, you know, four different um, quadrants and yeah I sort of came up with this idea and it just helps me situate whose responsibility is what you know we need to be resilient and I think 
in today's healthcare environment, you need resilient people. You need people with the skills, such as being able to say no, to have uh, to be assertive, to be able to look after themselves um, and to stay in their zone of power, right? Those are resilient skills that will 100% help you. But no matter how resilient you are, if you put someone in a bad enough workplace, a toxic enough workplace for, for a long enough time, they will eventually, you know, burn out or show symptoms of stress if they, if they don't change something. And I think another really important thing to recognise is that the reaction we, we are having, the stress and the burnout, is almost a normal reaction. Mm. Now, because I'll explain this, I have a, a friend, my parents used to live in Wales, and in order to get to their house, you had to go up this mountain over a pass. And uh, really, really beautiful. But we had a group, we went to stay, we had a group of friends coming and I had a phone call from one of my friends. She said, Rachel, I'm stuck on this pass. My car has overheated and it's just not going anywhere. And I said, oh, what happened? She said, well, I don't know, but I mean, I drove all the way up in fourth gear and now I just won't work. <laughs> and I said, how did you get up that hill in fourth gear? You know, you, that car was never designed to get up that hill in, in that gear. And I think the fact that so many of us are feeling stress yeah. and getting towards burnout just shows that actually we're human, that our bodies are responding in the way that, you know, in, because we were not designed to work this hard and to be under this amount of pressure and demand. So I think recognizing that actually we are responding normally to a very difficult situation and then seeking help and giving ourselves a break and thinking it's okay not to be okay mm. and it's okay to seek help because so you're right so many of us we just think I should I should be able to cope with this I should be able to work you know 10 days in a row without a day off and that 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 should be okay and and stress is just just normal well it's not okay mm. and it's not and eventually you will break down just like that car up that mountain <laughs> I know and that's one of the things about I don't know, the insidiousness of, you know, the boiling water or whatever it is, is you, it can sometimes make you lose that kind of perspective on actually this is, you know, I don't think my, many GPs could cope in these circumstances. Just coming back to recognising the things that you can influence, where does kind of influencing um, sort of systemic change come into the zone of power, would you say? I think that's a really good question. And actually, if anybody has read the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, he uses a very similar thing. He talks about the three different circles. There's your zone of, there's your circle of control. Um, and then you just outside that you've got a circle of influence and then there's and then there's everything else now when I was looking at these models that I thought were really helpful I was like okay yeah you've got your circle of influence and actually I've got a friend who's a coach and she said to me you know what Rachel you're either in control of something or you're not and that's sort of easier because if I think well I could influence that person by having a conversation with them and then they might change that they might change this in my workplace or whatever what can I do? Actually, I can speak to them and I can work on my tone of voice and what I say to them and when I speak to them. Mm. That is in my control. What is whether I've influenced them in, in my control at all? No, it's not. It's not that that's completely outside of my control. So for me, it's almost it's just easier to think if I want to influence that person, what's in my control? Right. And what's not. And it just makes it a little bit more black and white. Because if I then get really upset and stressed about the fact that I haven't influenced you, where do I go with that? Yeah. So that's such a great interview, Lovejoy, as always, of course. But um, yeah, well, how did you feel after it? I mean, did you feel enlightened? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it is helpful. I... I spoke at the beginning and I spoke I spoke during that interview about this real struggle I have about um you know so much of this problem or so much of what GPs are experiencing right now is due to sort of systemic factors wide a, a variety of wide factors and um to not address those <laughs> feels very frustrating and to say you know it, as an individual here's what you can do while meanwhile you know to refer back to uh, Jenny's this is fine meme you know that the, ha the house is on fire or or any of the the sort of analogies that we've had today so I find that frustrating but I think what Rachel very helpfully articulated you know she is right that actually our individual response is all we can control and we do have to kind of cope in this moment now and that's helpful to sort of say okay to, to take that step back and say because it is it does feel very disempowering right now and you can 
um, it can make you feel more helpless than perhaps you actually are. And so to take that step back and say, what can I really do? Mm. What can I control? Mm. And also, I think about, you know, we're all still, I think, reeling from this um, letter, the SOP letter that NHS England sent out and that kind of thing. I think also recognising that, you know, there, there doesn't seem like there's going to be a kind of a saviour here. Like, you know, the NHS England, RCGP, what, what's, what's, BMA, oh, what's the SLP? Oh, like? Jenny, you don't even Come want on, to Jenny. know. <laughs> but this is a letter, sorry, I should explain, sorry, thank you, that um, this is a letter that um, NHS England, the kind of directors of primary care in NHS England sent out late saying, um, basically saying you need to see patients face to face when they want to. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yes. And so, oh, right, right. The, the mandatory return. Exactly. To and that was, um, yes. okay. that, that was done without any consultation with GPs or and any real recognition mm. of, you know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. There's still, you know, the mm. challenges that Tom was talking about before about, you know, footfall within a surgery and um, social distancing and all of that. And so I think that that's an additional kind of source of demoralization, I think, for a lot of GPs is that not only are these pressures here, but it seems like the kind of higher ups don't really seem to have have your back. So um, so my point is, is that actually recognising what you as an individual can control without necessarily waiting. I mean, I do think the systemic changes need to happen as well, but that as an interim measure is is going to be helpful, I think. Um, sorry, I should not start talking with an um. That is really interesting. And I have to say that listening to Rachel speak was good. I think it's important to understand and kind of not only give ourselves permission to recognize when we're not doing okay, when things are not fine, um, but I had two major reactions. Um, the first one was thinking about what you can control and what kind of self-care you can do is well and good if you don't have small children to look after or an older adult to look after or, or anyone else to care about except for yourself and maybe a partner. Or, you know, like thinking about trying to deal with the stresses of work and find time for oneself while you are caring for other people is such a struggle <laughs> and like supremely difficult. It And I remember getting to a point when my first son was 18 months old and I still hadn't found a way to get back to regular exercise. And I remember having this moment of like, what is wrong with the world that I can't figure this out? <laughs> um, so I just really, I wish I could like rewind the interview and ask her like what about if you're a parent yeah. <laughs> um i'm getting really fired up here now yeah. um, the second thing that i was gonna say is that i just have to imagine that kind of stepping back and looking at the system and the structural factors that lead people to be frustrated to feel undervalued to feel overwhelmed, like, and I think this SOP is, you know, a case in point. It's just, it it must be so difficult for people who've had any kind of work experience outside of medicine because it does not mm. have to be this way, right? Like there are so many different jobs and worlds and work cultures where it is just very different and there are different ways of doing things that would be much healthier. Um, and yeah, I remember I, I did a I did a public health job before doing my specialist training. And I think I genuinely believe that that made my residency harder for me compared to people who had not left the track of med school to residency, as it were, in the United States, because they just didn't know that there was like a humane way to treat people. That was not what we were experiencing in medicine. Yeah. Um. I mean, it makes me think of um, some, something, because uh, I'm a partner at the practice I work in, and um, I guess one of the advantages of that is that you do have a bit more control, and 
Um, I want to try. I want to say two things, which are the, like the, the direct opposite of one another, but I think they're both worth saying. Hopefully, um, one is that I wonder sometimes if we make enough use of that control that we have as partners. Like one thing that always interests me is when when you hear GPs saying, "How can we keep having ten minute consultations?" And um, you know, at my practice, we've never had ten minute consultations <laughs> since I started working there nearly ten years ago. We've always had fifteen minute consultations. Um, and it's something, there are things within our control that, that for one reason or another, I don't really know why we, we, we don't make use of that, that, um, I think partly, and this is the, the opposite is that the contract we have with the NHS is so detailed and lengthy. And I feel like uh, deliberately or not, we're like sort of hamsters on a wheel, just, just being told to run faster by all these sort of changes in our contracts and you know every year you've got to get your head around another 50 different you know targets which possibly makes it hard to think about the things that you could do in addition to Mm. that because you're so busy you know chasing after these often fairly pointless (laughs) uh, uh, targets it is yeah you're right tom i think i i that that recognizing the control or power that we do have is very hard i think when when you're very stressed and feeling disempowered and sort of disengaged um from it it's really mm. hard to take that step back and also i think um there is what you were just alluding to jenny that sense of like um this is how it is and this is how it's always been that you can get in like a lot of healthcare institutions and certainly in the NHS, it's just that kind of slightly Mm. beleaguered feel that, you know, you have all the time. Mm. And so that perspective of, you know, this, this doesn't have to be this way and how can we do it differently is very hard to find, I think. And it's something I carry with me into my job at the BMJ where like you know if people are encouraging me to take an hour for lunch I'm like oh this is great this is amazing when you know you're the minimum you should expect you know in a, in an office job like that should should be that so it's kind of it's weird like that I think I think that's such a good point it seems like kind of what we're getting at is even if you recognize that there are things that need to change you may or may not have the power to change them. You may or may not be able to be in control of some of those things. But if you're actually getting burned out, you don't have the energy to change them. Um, And so we need people to kind of, in organizations, to look after their employees, their colleagues, to make sure that they're protected. And this is something that I spoke with Kat Chatfield and Abby Rimmer about. They are the co-hosts of the Wellbeing Podcast for the BMJ. And um, Kat made the excellent point that organizations are still made of individuals. They're just groups of individuals, individual people like us who have needs and who are at risk of burning out as well. Um, But we talked a little bit about some of the structural things that we could aspire to in order to protect us from and prevent burnout. And that's coming up after this offer for Deep Breath In listeners. As a GP, you want to ensure your practice is in line with the latest clinical guidance. That's why all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales have free access to BMJ Best Practice. With extensive coverage of the most commonly occurring conditions, BMJ Best Practice helps you treat patients with confidence. Structured around the patient consultation, It includes differential diagnosis and treatment algorithms, videos of common clinical procedures, important update alerts for evidence changes, over 250 medical calculators, links to local guidelines, nearly 500 patient leaflets and an award-winning app for access anytime, anywhere. Create your free account today by visiting bmj.com slash ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. And now back to my interview with Kat Chatfield and Abby Rimmer. When is leaving medicine the answer? Or when can a clinical career be salvaged? Um, and, and not to put you on the spot, Kat, but wonder if you can speak to that, kind of your thoughts chatting with people about burnout 
Yeah, sure. Um, and interestingly, I think most of the people we've spoken to on the podcast who've talked about burnout have, have not left their careers. Um, they may have made significant changes in their careers, so changes to their job patterns or to change their speciality, choosing not to complete their training in a particular area. Um, but most of them have, have kind of found ways to kind of reset um, and and reconnect with the sort of purpose they had in, in going into medicine and the kind of value and joy that they got from that. Um, and that's been really positive. I think we had a lot of positive discussions around that. Um, and I'm just going to completely blatantly plug <laughs> the recent episode we did with with um, Claire Kay, who's a, a coach who specializes in, in coaching doctors. And she basically took us through this coaching um, experience on the podcast where she sort of um, talks about, you know, what are these kind of reflective questions that you can ask yourself to help you understand where you are and how you feel about your job and, you know, whether it should be better than it is um, and then what you can do to kind of either refocus or to step away from medicine um completely um and sometimes I kind of look back on my own experience and I, I sort of laugh a bit because you know I did my training I did the kind of really intense junior doctor years um you know that was stressful I lived apart from my husband you know it was it was a lot of stress a lot of long hours and then I did general practice and you you know and our listeners know all the pressures that come with that um, and then I left clinical medicine when I ended up having my second child and um, I was doing part-time clinical, part-time editorial work and it became too much to split my attention in all the different ways and I thought, okay, I'm just going to do um, editorial stuff. Uh, and then I subsequently ended up a couple of years later um, going off work with my mental health um, and I, I definitely had depression and anxiety but I'm, I'm, there was an element of burnout to that as well so I kind of find it quite hilarious that I supposedly left this kind of high pressure environment for this much lower stress more controlled environment and and yet still kind of experience this this mental health crisis and I think there's a lot of I kind of felt a lot of denial like oh this can't be happening to me because you know why should it I'm not doing that stressful stuff anymore you know I'm doing this stuff which I should be able to cope with and it should all be fine and I was really focused on what it should be like instead of paying attention to what it was actually like and what I was actually experiencing and feeling and and living within that moment and so I think that's that's what I really want people to hear I guess this idea that you know just pay attention to yourself because you know you know what you're going through and it doesn't matter what the external situation is you know you could be having the worst awful covid pandemic and multiple pressures at home and your own health issues and be completely fine or you know everything could be great and you could feel fine and safe and no one's got covid and no one's died and it's all great but you're still really suffering with your mental health um so i suppose that's that's what i really want to kind of draw on from from my experiences it is heartening to me to hear that most people have not left and that people have been able to find some kind of reset or reconnect. I think it's interesting to think about kind of resetting and reconnecting as not only an individual exercise. And yes, it's it really important to kind of take stock of how you yourself are feeling to not deny those feelings and to to be okay with recognizing that even if your colleagues are a certain way you're not um but i also have to think that there are some structural issues um that perhaps contribute to high levels of burnout or on the other hand could help alleviate um, and and really improve some of those risk factors. It's a really interesting question. Just reflecting on, just to reflect again on, on where Kat and I came from with the podcast when we first started is we were very conscious that we didn't want to make well-being the responsibility of the individual. And although there are lots of things that we wanted to offer people that they could do for themselves, we were quite clear that it shouldn't be down to the individual to solve this problem. And I think in the UK, especially the word resilience has now become a bit of a dirty word because it puts the kind of impetus on the on the individual to look after themselves. In terms of structurally what organisations can do, we had an interesting conversation with um, someone called Michael West about organisational kindness and how organisations can better look after 
their staff. And some of that is the things we spoke about before, you know, the more practical things of actually providing spaces for people and giving them access to food and showing that, you know, showing them that they're valued in that kind of way. I think probably other things are slightly more difficult, especially in the NHS. I know that coaching is available to some NHS trainees, but whether or not they know how to access that is probably another question. Kat, you can probably add more on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to those things that we talked about as factors which promote burnout or a culture which is mm. more going to predispose people to burnout and things that are protective. Um, and I think, you know, before the pandemic, we were looking at things like um, control, for example. So, you know, um, we talked to, um, it was part of the BMJ Awards, actually. We talked, gave a shortlisted a team in, in Brighton who um, they'd gone for self-rostering in the emergency department. So they all got together and they basically agreed all their shifts. And so that people could say, oh, actually, you know what? Um, Tuesday is really important for me because that's when I play football or, you know, I really need Saturday mornings because I take my daughter to this club. And they sort of had arranged that. And then people with children had kind of, you know, were happy to work in the holidays. And But then took, I think one person had amassed like six months off in terms of a sabbatical later on. And, and that just, they did it so it really worked for everybody. And so they had, they sort of created that control within the team. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of um, cultures, particularly training cultures are completely the opposite. You know, it's like you go where you're sent, you know, you it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what home commitments you have. You have to go to this hospital that's 80 miles away for a number of months that we determine to do a job that we determine in a specialty that, that we choose that's probably tangentially related to your area of interest, but maybe very distant. Um, and you're doing that at a point in your life where a lot of your contemporaries are, you know, maybe more settled, have more control over their careers. And that goes on for a long time for clinicians and, and is kind of, you know, pushing into the consultant era in a way that it didn't used to. So there's that control issue. And then there's the workload issue. We know that, you know, there's this vicious cycle with the healthcare workforce where, you know, you put stress on the workforce and they're overloaded and then people end up going off um, for mental or physical health and then everyone else gets more overloaded and you can't recruit and you get into this real kind of cycle. So there's that kind of structural background. Um, and then there's this thing about reward and value that Abby was talking about. You know, when I was a junior doctor, I got free housing. You know, we had a mess with sofas, you know, that you could get hot food in the canteen sometimes at night you know and gradually we saw all of that eroded and taken away from staff and kind of austerity and and cost cutting um and i think there was a real lack of organizational understanding that those things are actually really really important you know um and you'd have a company like tesco's who were really ruthless um and then their staff would be like oh it's great working for tesco's because they give us 30 cent discount on our shopping tesco knew that that kind kind of staff engagement was really, really important um, for them to attract and retain their workforce. Um, so I just think the NHS was not very smart about a lot of this stuff. Um, and I think that applies to other health systems across the world as, as well. So I think, you know, just paying attention to all these things that we know about what motivates and engages people, um, that, that is going to help with burnout on a structural level. And then, as we said, paradoxically, the pandemic helped with some of that, you know, helped with some of the value, um, as in feeling valued and rewarded. You know, you got your free coffee or, you know, your whatever company, John Lewis, delivering sofas to hospitals. Um, and then you also got a real connection and sense of purpose with your values. So, you know, why did you come into healthcare in the first place? You know, you were literally at the front line in a crisis saving lives. So, you know, you, you got some of these protective factors that had really been missing pre-COVID. Um, and then I think our real concern is, you know, what's going to happen now as we transition? You know, how are we going to maintain some of those protective factors and how are we going to value them and invest in them financially um, in order to kind of sort of support the workforce going forward and and get us out of where we were kind of two years ago structurally no I would only add and I think Kat absolutely hit it hit the nail on the head I'm quite a, a simple person I think about things very simply and I think for me even pre-pandemic one of the core issues of the NHS was that staff didn't feel valued and I couldn't understand why the NHS just couldn't get a handle on that and say there are basic things that we could do that would make people feel a lot you know it's not paying them more but it's letting them take their wedding off or it's 
making sure they can take their annual leave when they want to. That can't be that hard. And yet it seemed so hard. And as Kat said, actually, some of those things have been resolved by people or conversely have been resolved by the pandemic. But I do think this this issue of feeling valued is absolutely the heart of a lot of these things. Absolutely. So one thing I know from the kind of business world, which may or may not apply to medicine, is that flexibility in your hours, in your roles, is something that is very protective of kind of well-being in the workplace, particularly for people with caretaking responsibilities, whether that's of children or whether that's of aging adults. Um, And I wonder if this is just an intractable problem in medicine in the sense that someone always has to be there. Is there a way that we can maintain some level of flexibility now that we know that, for example, you know, telemedicine, while not perfect, can be functional in a number of ways. When you talk about this issue of flexibility and, you know, people having caring responsibilities, I often think, well, nurses do it in the NHS. You know, the majority of our nurse workforce are women and the majority of them have caring responsibilities. And yet somehow they seem to make it work in a way that doctors don't. Now, I could be wrong and Kat might come in and tell me I'm wrong. No, I, I think it's really valid, Abby, and I, I don't think we're good enough at learning from from other other um, industries. I mean, you know, the police have to do it. You know, the ambulance service have to do it. The firefighting service have to do it. You know, how how do they work? You know, how does it work as a a firefighter that you do four days on and four days off? And you know, what what can we learn about the, those shift patterns? Um, you know, being innovative about shifts. I mean, one of the things that used to drive me the most insane in general practice was that all the appointments were 10 minutes. And I was like, I don't need 10 minutes for everyone. I need three minutes for a pill check and I need 20 minutes for a mental health consultation. But we don't ask people, how long do you think you'll need with the doctor? We don't have that conversation. We don't, we don't generate that flexibility. And it's because it's complicated and it's hard. But just because it's complicated, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing and that the outcome would be really positive, I think. But I'm an optimist. I also think in the U, this might be UK specific, but and in some parts of the NHS, there is a culture among more senior clinicians that working longer hours is a good thing and makes you a better doctor. It's also a kind of back in my day kind of attitude, I think, of I did 100 and whatever hours a week and why can't you? And, and lots of people are fighting to change that, which is fantastic, but I think it still exists to a certain extent and I don't know how you tackle that culture because then you're telling someone that the way they did it was wrong and that's really hard to hear but I do think it does exist some places. It was I felt like we were getting like the greatest hits from the world. I know more podcast podcast royalty. (laughs) We've been very spoiled this week. What stuck out to you? Yeah, there were so many things actually that stuck out for me. Um, one was about, um, you know, finding uh, structures that work and for you and uh, your practice and where you are and giving, I suppose, having the autonomy to decide that. Um, one practice where I work, they've set up, you know, their appointments in a way that is very GP friendly, very patient friendly as well. I mean, this is all pre-pandemic, but it was largely walk-ins um before uh, in the afternoon and in the morning you could book and it always like I always loved working there because um you could when you have sort of that kind of walk-in system the re- it was very like dynamically managed where rece- receptionists would move people off um your list if you're spending long with someone and, and put them on someone else's list and sometimes an appointment would take five minutes sometimes it would take half an hour and it you know that took off some of that pressure of, you know, in the middle of a consultation. So I definitely think there are ways to kind of look at the structure and take that step back and and find what works. And sort of going back to what you were saying, Tom, finding, um, you know, having that control and power to be able to, you know, really organise that the way you want. And the other other things that really stuck out to me, I mean, one was um, Kat sharing her story of her experiences. And I think it resonates so much this feeling that of I don't know like um guilt 
uh, shame, isolation that we can have about the feelings that, you know, we might be experiencing, the experiences that we're having. And I think one thing that is so important, I think, is is that message that Kat, you know, really wanted to get across is that, you know, these feelings are valid. And actually also that, you know, so, so often people are not alone in going through them as well. And general practice can be so isolating. And so, bad at kind of you know uh, uh, you know helping you to remember that so I think that's really important and then the final thing that kind of really resonated with me was you know this idea that um, support and feeling valued is so important to our sense of well-being at work and certainly from the context of GP in the UK at least I think that to me is what feels like it's been missing a little bit is you know um we talk, I talked about that letter from NHS England so you know support from from top feels like it's lacking but then also the sense of value um whether that's from your practice but I think from the public at the moment that is a big kind of um the sort of narrative I think you know when you when you're seeing patients often you do feel well, I feel very you know, I feel valued from the feedback that, you know, I might hear within a consultation. Sometimes <laughs> I'm saying always patients are like falling over themselves. But um, but the sort of narrative here is one where it's like, you know, why aren't GPs seeing anyone? What have GPs been doing during the pandemic? And this is, you know, having GPs being so central to like delivering the vaccination programme. That I think is incredibly challenging to deal with. And I think, you know, explains at least in part some of why the, the this current moment feels so hard. You know, I think general practice has always traditionally, you know, is always, you know, stood up and, and dealt with challenges when they come. But this feels like, this feels different. I think the sort of GP bashing that, you know, is so prevalent. Mm. It does feel different, doesn't it? Um... I suppose there's a, uh, I don't know how to say this without offending every listener, <laughs> but um, you know, there's those people you, you sometimes meet who like to um, sort of moan, uh, but maybe aren't so keen on changing. Um, you might say, oh, why don't you do something about that? And it's like, oh no, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> um, and I think that's me. Uh, so I'm talking about my, myself there. And I do come home and moan if I've had a bad day and then get challenged with that. Oh, you don't have to do that you know why aren't you going to do sales oh no I couldn't couldn't possibly um <laughs> I don't know why that occurred to me but um sometimes I suppose that's the two by two grid isn't it like there are some te- that any job you work in or anything you do or any anything I can really think of there's always the the downsides um but very often they are when you really kind of sit and think about it they are outweighed by the the positives you know it's well paid you know do have some good interactions with patients I do have some good days and I suppose the challenge is how to um, how to best you know hold, keep hold on hold on to some of those things or that balance or know when it's okay just to have a moan. Yeah, it doesn't mean you have to change your whole career. But I but I think one of the things here is like yes, of course it's okay to like express that discontent with something. But where it gets tricky is that a lot of, you know, you're, you're being so reflective about that, right? You're like, oh, is it, is it just me? But actually, like some of that discontent is really appropriate, mm. you know, like when the work environment is toxic, when, you know, there's not enough of, you know, what, what Kat and then you were talking about, Napjoy, like when people genuinely aren't feeling valued, by the organization for any number of reasons. Um, it is, I mean, it's really legitimate to be upset about that yeah. because, mm. and I, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but it doesn't have to be this way. Mm. And I think, I think drawing the line and kind of sorting out for ourselves, you know, when we need to start pushing back on something and trying to make change versus when we need to be, you know, thinking about more self-care and potentially getting a coach or thinking about some of these other strategies for to deal with what's going on inside ourselves. I think that is um, really yeah. hard. And I mean, so much of that pushing back role as well is there are 
there are organizations and kind of leaders whose job in part is to do that and to advocate for GPs you know and a hmm. BMA in the UK the Royal College for GPs and I think that um that agitating for system change that needs to be part of it as well and needs to be a big part of the solution because as you're saying so much of what people are feeling like right now is is completely legitimate and completely expected in in these conditions and of course you know the bmj is part of that you know should show part of that leadership and has a role to play here and that's something we you know we're going to have to think about is what how can we contribute to this conversation more broadly as a journal yeah uh, another thing that occurs to me is that you know we're talking there about changing the work environment maybe even pushing to change the the system you know there's, i guess it's like number of gps or the funding or some of those things but i just wonder sometimes if the if the problem not the problem but the way we're thinking about this isn't isn't even completely beyond beyond that um you know with our attitudes towards healthcare in, in society or expectations mm-hmm. of of health and what it does or or just some I constantly feel every day there's a mismatch between the way I, I look at medicine and health and, and the way patients or the public do. Um, and that's a massive driver of, of stress and workload, isn't it? It's got nothing to do with, you know, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today. Yeah. Late stage capitalism, you have a lot to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting that you said that, Tom, because I don't, I don't see that kind of larger disconnect as being between GPs and patients necessarily, but it's like the practice of medicine in a capitalist environment. Like it, it's so, it, it just seems so wrong to be trying to deliver health. In a society that's trying to make money off of it. I mean, and I, that's, you know, definitely true mm. for the United States. Yeah, and even in the UK, it's a business. You know, if you're a partner, you're you're running a little business, and you're you mm-hmm. don't like it when your 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 drawings are, are lower, uh, and you don't like. Yeah, we, we we could employ a lot more staff, and you know, probably improve access and care. But you know, I'd quite like to to be earning more than the salaried GPs. <laughs> that's that's the the, tr- the reality. I think, but it doesn't get t- talked about. We don't we don't like to go there. Yeah. And I mean, also the difficulty is the other thing that um, I, I suppose a lot of those drivers in the UK, at least, of, you know, um, things like convenience and of access and that kind of stuff, they're all things that patients want for a reason as well, that um, there's a real, um, I suppose, tension there that like, you know, I think it is helpful, it's better for patients and possibly their health if people are able to access appointments in a way that is convenient for them Mm. and in by a means that works for them but at the same time there has to be a recognition that we don't we don't have the resourcing really to to do that and so that I think is that's where I struggle is like okay those expectations are there and I feel like we're on that path now where you know we're we live in a world of Amazon Prime and, and all of that. And, and that's that's not going to go away. But then at least have an honest conversation about it and say, OK, well, given the number of GPs we have, the way the services are set up, you know, this is what we can do with that. And um, that that honest conversation, I think, is completely missing um, to probably GPs and patients detriment, really, because their expectations are that, you know, G- GPs should be delivering something different. So I think some of the themes that we've been discussing today are definitely going to be things that we want to return to. Uh, for instance, the medicalization there. And I've got a, a couple of episodes lined up and some really interesting uh, people that we're going to talk to about that and the, the broader societal changes that may be driving some of what, what we're seeing in our practice. Um, but I think we'd also really like to hear more about how people are doing things differently and for the better and uh, it'd be great actually to hear from some listeners if you've if you've done done something different that has made your practice better or your your workload better. Please get in touch. Um, you can email us practice at bmj.com and uh, yeah, maybe we can have you on the podcast.
Uh, and that's all we've got time for really today. But uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Rachel and Abby and Kat for those great interviews. And as always, uh, Jenny, thank you very much. See you next time. Thanks, Tom. See you both next time. And see you next time, Navjoy. Thank you. See you next time. Uh, if you're enjoying Deep Breath In, please uh, go to your podcast app and rate us or like us or subscribe and make sure you mention it at your practice meeting as well. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye for now. <laughs>